one, if you're reading a good story or good information, something that really excites you, you know, you want to turn that page to get more information or see where the storyline's going or whatever, you know, there's an excitement about turning the next page. The other is what happened to me often when I was doing my master's work in archaeology is a lot of science talk and uh, scholars tend to get redundant and I always look forward to turning the page into a new chapter just to get out of the other one. You know, I feel like that's where we're at right now. Let's turn the page out of 2020 into 2021 because better things are at hand. Better things are in store, right? So I personally have been uh, deeply disturbed by the verbal assaults against Christians and Christianity, uh, especially by several state governors who seem inordinately focused on closing any expression of Christian fellowship or worship, uh, some going as far as trying to forbid both worship and the taking of communion. You know that they actually, in some states, forbid churches from ministering the elements of communion. Of course, that got annihilated in the courts, thank God. You know, I'm disturbed when the news media paints a word picture of the church as the villain when compliance is resisted and leaves the perception that we are not, we are no more than another right-leaning group with a political agenda of our own. And I see this with Foish, uh, with that worship thing he's doing. Anyone following him? Sean Foish? I mean, he's doing magnificent things, uh, doing these open-air worship segments all over the country, thousands and tens of thousands coming to Christ, being baptized, healings have broken out spontaneously in the crowds. I mean, just a profound work of the Lord. And uh, he, he posted something yesterday, uh, which I can't quote. Uh, he po posted some comments sent to him and his family concerning what he was doing. And the most redundant word in the comments was the F word. And a certain perception about what he's doing. Really, really uh, sad. Uh, here's an example I ran across on Small Church Pastor's Facebook page. Uh, this is from Diane Friedrichs, and she asked the question, Okay, I have a question and prayer request. Over the last few weeks, there have been posts on Facebook that have put down the church, Christianity, our beliefs, etc. I have felt called to defend my faith, Jesus and God. The responses have been terrible, to say the least. Pretty much attacking me. These people seem so angry. Why? I feel led to continue to do this, but I need your prayers for God's wisdom in knowing what to say and when to remain silent or when to stop the conversation. Thank you ahead of time for your prayers. It's really been an eye-opener to see the anger that people have against God and Jesus. But what digs deeply into my soul and really breaks my heart is when I see the comments of those who, as children and teens, once worshipped Jesus and now having gone off to college to be re-educated, 
or careers to become successful, renounce the church as bigots, racist, homophobic haters, or those who live lifestyles of sin and darkness. The perception they hold has distorted the truth they once held. And the things they once held as destructive to their spiritual well-being, they now support, promote, and defend, even against the influence of the gospel. This failure, the loss of our adult children to the world, is our failure. It belongs to the church. So how did we fail? I think partly because we focus so strongly on upholding a high moral standard demonstrated, now there's nothing wrong with a high moral standard, but demonstrated through activity or more often by non-activity. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. That our children often developed a counterfeit spirituality in order to be acceptable in the church while at the same time being influenced by the world through a wide variety of venues. Then once out from under the influence or observation, the facade fell away and they discovered they were not who we had hoped they were. We taught them how to act as a Christian, but not how to be as a Holy Spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ. Our perceptions of Christian living were off. And it created a Christian reality that had a false foundation. If you look like this, if you speak like this, if you act like this, you are a Christian. Now listen, walk around going, buck, 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 buck. Great. Do that. It's going to turn you into a chicken? No way. Right? I just threw that in, by the way. <laughs> You cannot work or perform your way into heaven. Jesus is the way. By grace, through faith, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. This idea of deception by perception is nothing new. The church has been assaulted this way with severe consequences since the first century. I want to read you a letter. This letter is from a man named Pliny the Younger. That's because there was a Pliny the Elder, his uncle. Okay. Uh, he was the Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus, now in Turkey, and wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan around A.D. 112. He asked for counsel on dealing with the early Christian community. The letter de details an account of how Pliny conducted trials of suspected Christians. Are you suspected as a Christian? Or are you known as a Christian? Mm. Suspected Christians who appeared before him as a result of a no anonymous accusation. That's pretty prevalent these days, isn't it? And asked for the emperor's guidance on how they should be treated. Neither Pliny nor Trajan mentions the crime that Christians had committed except for being Christians. Could you be found guilty?
and other historical sources do not provide a simple answer to what that crime could be, but most likely due to the stubborn refusal of Christians to worship Roman gods, making them appear as objecting to Roman rule. Pliny states that he gives Christians multiple chances to affirm they are innocent, and if they refuse three times, they're executed. Pliny states that his investigations have revealed nothing on the Christian's part but harmless practices. <laughs> this, this is really almost like an oxymoron, right? Harmless practices and depraved excessive superstition. What? <laughs> However, Pliny seems concerned about the rapid spread of this superstition and views Christian gatherings, views Christian gatherings, he must have been the governor of California too. <laughs> Sorry, it couldn't pass that by. And views Christian gatherings as a potential starting point for sedition. Although it is clear that Pliny, Pliny executed Christians, neither Pliny nor Trajan, again, mentioned the crime that Christians had committed except for being Christians, and other historical sources do not provide a simple answer to this question. Trajan's response to Pliny makes it clear that being known as a Christian was sufficient for judicial action. Everett Ferguson, in his book, backgrounds of early Christianity states that the charges against Christians by Pliny may have been partly based on their secret crimes. Secret crimes, you know what that means? They were somebody's perception associated with Christianity. Perceptions formed by what the Christians were doing, such as cannibalistic feasts and incest. That is the perception. The cannibalistic feast and the incest charges were based on misunderstanding of the Eucharist, what we just did, a, a communion, right? And Christians being brothers and sisters even after marriage, incest. However, the charge of atheism related to the failure to worship the state gods and made Christianity a superstition and not a religion. So the perception of the pagans was that we were cannibalistic, incestuous group of believers, right? And that Greco-Roman pagan worldview stood for about 150 years was that Christians were incestually marrying their brothers and sisters and eating human flesh. Why? Because communion is the body and blood of Christ, and pagans perceived that as literal, literally. And if you use good Christianese, then you may, in a meeting, call your husband or wife brother or sister, right? I mean, Martha, Martha always addresses me as Pastor Dick, right? Often, often, often. I'm trying to get it to always, but it's often. <laughs> and again, the pagans uh, took that as literal. That was their perception of Christian activity as understood 
by a pagan worldview and the perception birthed persecution. I'll say that again. The perception birthed persecution. What people do not understand, they will try to eliminate. Then the perception began to change again. Why? Here's the answer. In the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic, whoop, a pandemic came, right? And it swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspect that this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. Whatever the actual disease, it was lethal. As many contagious diseases are when they strike a previously unexposed population. Now listen to this. During the 15-year duration of the epidemic. Oh, my. You don't have to receive that. A quarter to a third of the population probably died of it. The Greco-Roman world trembled as on all sides, family, friends, and neighbors died horribly. No one knew how to treat the stricken, nor did most people try. During the first plague, the famous classical physician Galen fled Rome for his country estate where he stayed until the danger subsided. But for those who could not flee, the typical response was to try to avoid any contact with the afflicted, since it was understood that the disease was contagious. Hence, when their first, their first symptom appeared, victims often were thrown into the streets where the dead and dying lay in piles. That included family. As for action, Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them, and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. As William H. McNeil pointed out in his book, Plagues and Peoples, under the circumstances prevailing in this era, even quite elementary nursing will greatly reduce mortality. Simple provision of food and water, for instance, will allow persons who are temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of perishing miserably. It is entirely plausible that Christian nursing would have reduced mortality by as much as two-thirds. The fact that most stricken Christians survived did not go unnoticed, lending immense credibility to Christian miracle working. The Holy Spirit was on the move, and the pagans began to recognize what was going on. Indeed, the miracles often included pagan neighbors and relatives. This surely must have produced some conversions, especially by those who were nursed back to health. So again, perception is formed by how the activity of those being perceived impacts the ones forming the perception. Have you ever been excited about some activity or ministry or event and you mention it to someone else and they are just as negative about it as you are positive? 
right? <laughs> the response is based on perceived personal impact of the event, group, or ministry. When the Christians started providing a benefit to the pagans through the work of ministry, the perception of Christians being evil vanished from their minds and over the next 150 years completely reversed the worldview regarding, regarding Christian activity. Now listen to this historical fact. This is really awesome. What went on during the epidemics was only an intensification of what went on every day among Christians. Indeed, the impact of Christian mercy, the impact of Christian mercy. Let me just let that hang in the air for a minute. Christian mercy was so evident that in the fourth century, when the emperor Julian attempted to restore paganism, he exhorted the pagan priesthood to compete with the Christian charities. Hear what I just said? In a letter to the high priest of Galatia, Julian urged the distribution of grain and wine to the poor, noting that the impious Galileans, or the Christians, in addition to their own, support ours. Not only do they support the Christians, they support the pagans with food, with mercy, with giving. And it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. In other words, not getting anything from the pagans. But there was little or no response to Julian's proposal because there were no doctrines and no traditional practices for the pagan priests to build upon. They had no baseline to work from. Listen, your family gets sick, throw them out in the street. Right? The animals will take care of them, the birds of the air will take care of them. Don't worry about it. Right? And they had no understanding of mercy. Christians believed in life everlasting. Christians believed in life everlasting. And that, that final little statement, is the real crux of the matter for us. It is not what you do that matters because that will be judged by perception. So you can be doing something and one person is going to say, oh, that is so awesome. And you turn to the next person, and they're going to want to rip your face off. See, it's by perception. So it, it's not what you're doing that matters. It is why you do what you do. Here's the divine pattern as explained by the Apostle Peter in Acts 10.37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. So you remember the story. John is baptizing at the Jordan, and Jesus goes out, and he gets baptized by John, and the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit comes down, right? So powerfully that he takes on a physical form. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Note the order. 
the Holy Spirit. That happened at his water baptism. Then power. That happened in the wilderness testing where he overcame the temptations of Satan. Where was he empowered? Remember it says, and Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. He received the Holy Spirit at the baptism, but he was empowered in his time of testing. Listen, don't think that 2020 was a waste of time. God has been at work in you. God has been at work in his church. He's empowering the church for the year ahead, for the decade ahead, for the generations that lie ahead, for our children and our children's children and their children. We get empowered in adversity. Persecution is the seedbed of the church. Then he went about doing good healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. I hope you all know this, this next scripture. If not, memorize it. Live it. Let it form you into the man or woman of divine faith and power. Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to you. You know what Zerubbabel means? He's a man coming out of captivity. He was a man coming out of Babylon into Jerusalem, coming out of captivity into the purposes of God. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Can we say that? Can we break that down and say it together? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's say it again, together. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now let's shout it out, all right? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Yeah. That's a good word. Anyone think looking for a new tattoo idea? <laughs> Here's just one response from a believer to Diane Friedrich's Facebook prayer request. You remember that? Here's what he says. We don't need to look any further than a mirror to see who's at fault. The church is its own worst enemy. Jesus spent much of his time rebuking religion of the day. We need a reset. We need a reset. We need to get back to a personal relationship with Jesus. Reset. We need a reset. In early December of 2020, Jeremy Riddle, a vineyard worship leader at the Anaheim Vineyard Church, released his first book entitled The Reset, Returning to the Heart of Worship and a Life of Undivided Devotion. This little book is so powerful, Eric and I are talking about doing a 10-week series of sermons based on each chapter of this book. 
It is so much the heart of God for 2021. Jeremy Riddle has just nailed it. He has just nailed it. I just started reading it this morning, and uh, just the introduction by his pastor, and I'm thinking, I got to get a hold of this guy and have a conversation. I mean, oh, my goodness. Uh, just powerful stuff. It is time, church. It's time for a reset. It's time for a reset. On December 28th of 2020, just a few days ago, Sean Foish, who has been conducting massive public worship events all over the country with signs and wonders, lots of salvations, water baptism, stated this, I believe in the great reset of the church in America. Boldness, courage, and a spirit of revival is rising in our nation. Chris Vallotton puts it all into profound perspective. In order to pave new neural pathways to divine thinking, we will need to push past the temptation to solve the challenges of life with biological thinking, which is our natural inclination. We begin the process by asking the Holy Spirit what he thinks about various things throughout our day, and then we listen spirit to spirit for his answers. Much like any other relationship, building a friendship with the Holy Spirit takes time. Renewing the spirit of your mind is really about learning to hear the voice of God by allowing time for your spirit to build a friendship with the Holy Spirit and ultimately bond spirit to spirit. He goes on to say, the reason we don't develop the spirit of our minds is because we usually solve life's challenges with lower level natural thinking that can be based in biblical principles but may not actually be spirit led. You know you can do right things at the wrong time? Proverbs 3, 5 says this. Here's another tattoo. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not, do not lean on your own understanding. And here's the final word for today anyways on the matter from the master himself. Jesus speaking in John 16, beginning in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. Can I say that again? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. When does the spirit of truth come? When you invite him in. 
simple as that. It couldn't get more basic than that. When you invite him in, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy, it's the mantra of the Vineyard Movement. Come Holy Spirit. We say that because we fully believe by faith that when we give that invitation, the Holy Spirit re responds to it. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, for he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's time to recess. Reset our priorities our reliance and dependence, our affections and relational pursuits. It's time to reset who is going to feed your mind and your soul to form your spiritual state of being. Will it be the daily news, Facebook or Twitter with their myriad of confusing opinions, hate and anger-filled dialogue? fueled by the dark agendas of unseen powers and principalities that are hell-bent to destroy your soul? Or will it be the comforter, the spirit of truth and peace, the Holy Spirit of the living God, given as the promised gift of the Father through the work of the cross of Jesus to empower us with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It is our daily individual choice to make. I'm going to restate that. It is a moment by moment individual choice to make. Shall we start today? I'm going to ask you to stand as I pray. Wait on you, Holy Spirit. We invite you to come. Come and reset our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our spirits. Incline them evermore toward you. Draw us ever deeper into the deep wells of your love, the love of Jesus Christ. Form us, shape us, reset us, wash away all the weight of the past year, the past years, oh God, all our religiosity, all of our wasted works, all of the things that we tried to figure out, tried to resolve, tried to be the answer for. We surrender to you. We lay them at the cross today, oh God. Count them as crucified in Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus. Lord, they are no longer ours. You're resetting our minds, oh God, renewing us, 
giving us the mind of Christ that we may apprehend your truth as we call on your name. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come? Begin to reset your church. Awaken us. Awaken us, O oh God, to the rich treasure that you are to us, O oh God, to all the possibilities that abound in you as we pursue you, as we ask you, as we love on you, O oh God, as we receive from you rather than from ourselves or from uh, tainted other sources, O oh God. Lord, we want you to be the primary source of living wellsprings, Lord, flowing like a river of life into our lives, O oh God, that out from us might come salvation and healing and miracles and signs and wonders, O oh God, that evangelism would flow in the streets, O oh God, uh, being affirmed and confirmed by signs and wonders following, O oh God. We need more of you, Holy Spirit. We need all of you that we can get, O oh Holy Spirit. And, and you are boundless, boundless in your being. And yet we want all of you. We want more of you, Jesus. More of you, Jesus. Come and reset us, O oh God. Come and reset us. I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come up that are here. Any, anyone else that's part of a prayer team, I'm going to ask you to come up also. Would you like to get some extras up here? Yeah, that should do it. That should do it. So what I'm going to offer to you is an opportunity. I'm just going to invite you, if you want the Holy Spirit, To reset you today. I'm going to ask you to come up and just allow one of these prayer, prayer team members to just put the hand on your shoulder and invite the Holy Spirit to fill you and reset you today. Okay? If you, you've heard this word, if this word has touched something in your heart and you're saying, Pastor, yes, today, I want to reset, I want to start afresh and anew, and I want to start according to your word, O oh God, by the Holy Spirit. Just come up, receive some prayer. For all of you at home, if you're watching this on Facebook, I want you to just stand where you are. I just want you to lift your hands up in a posture to receive, and I bless you right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bless you with the presence of the Holy Spirit receive, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the reset of your heart, your mind, and your spirit in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, a fresh anointing, a fresh empowering beginning today. Be blessed in Jesus' name. You folks that are here, come receive some prayer. Uh, we're going to go offline to dismiss. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen.